and about half are women. Still too many new people getting infected with HIV, right? Two million a year. Uh, but the good news here, right, is look at that small number of children being infected, right? We have made great progress in um, reducing mother to child transmission, so our PMTCT efforts um, have been working. That's about half, that number of H uh, new HIV infections in children is about half of what it was 10 years ago. Also good news on the, in terms of the number of deaths, a million point one too many, but um, also, again, that's been reduced um, from about 2 million about 10 years ago. Um, I will also say that we've made such great success with reducing the number of deaths due to HIV that actually more people now die of TB than die of HIV. So again, just um, looking at the, the trends here, nice, this is exactly what we want to be seeing, right? We look at the blue line, um, new infections with HIV heading downward. It started, looks like it might be tapering off, but it's mostly a downward trend, and certainly the deaths from HIV, uh, that nice downward slope that we want to see. This is now a set of concentric circle diagrams, which is now, I think, how they're capturing um, where we are with some HIV indicators, uh, where we've been, where we are, and where we want to go. So if you look at where we um, have been, right, 2,003 million people newly infected uh, with HIV. In 2015, it was down to 2 million. But where we want to go is that big jump. That's going to, in 2020, taking us down to about half a million new infections each year uh, with HIV. We'll talk about how we're going to get there. Similar um, ambitious targets with um, reducing the number of people dying from HIV. So bringing it from 2005 to, to down to um, 2015, cutting it in half. But again, by 2020, we want to make that big leap um, of the it down to less than half a million deaths. And again, just a map to kind of orient us to where um, we need to be targeting our efforts if we're going to have that dramatic um, reduction in uh, new infections and deaths from HIV. Now this map shows, um, shaded by WHO regions, not by country, so you know, all of the Americas are averaged out, all of the African, um, the continent averaged out, um, etc. So what you don't see um, on this map is what's happening at the country level. Um, so we know that the HIV burden is, is um, uh, being born heavily in southern Africa. So across the African continent, you see quite a range. So South Africa being at, at um, having the highest prevalence rates, where 19% um, of the population is HIV infected. That translates into 7 million people. So about one-fifth of all those living with HIV are <coughs> in South Africa. Compare that to Tanzania, um, where Ford and Elizabeth, I work right here in East Africa, where the rates now down to about 5%, prevalence rates down to about 5%, from a high of um, 8%. And then Nigeria, um, somewhere in there, with a rate of only 3%. I was surprised by that number, that is so low. But again, when you dig a little deeper, just like in the US, of course it's concentrated in these high-risk populations. So if um, you're a commercial sex worker, Nigeria, 15% HIV infected, um, compared to 57% of commercial sex workers in South Africa. Men who have sex with men, somewhere 20 to 25% 
um, in both of those countries. Again, targeted in certain uh, high-risk populations. So, in order to, um, again, to get where we need to um, see these uh, large reductions, we know we're going to need to target efforts. Um, and this is a list of what's called the roughly 30 fast-track countries, where efforts are really trying to be fast-tracked to, to um, uh, ramp up progress. So you see it is predominantly low- and middle-income countries, predominantly countries um, on the African continent, but there's also there's countries from every region of the world represented here. So you, you see Haiti, you see Jamaica, India, Indonesia, and then um, the two high-income countries being Russia um, and the U.S. So this is where 90% of the patients live. This is, again, these are the countries where we're targeting efforts. So what are going to be our efforts? What are going to be our interventions? Well, it's really going, it's mostly about a ramping up of current interventions. Some of them are listed here. Um, on this graphic, lots of strategy documents coming out from WHO and UNAIDS about how, how we're going to reach these very ambitious targets. And I'll say a little bit more um, about those now. So you may have heard about the 90-90-90 target. Right, this is about um, making sure that 90% of people who are HIV infected know their status. That's what's represented here in the um, first bar that 90% um, of those who are living with HIV are receiving antiretroviral therapy. That's uh, shown here in the second bar. And can you see the tops of that, where the gaps are? Uh, not very well. Sorry, it doesn't project so well. You, have, you at least have the numbers there. Um, and then um, the, the third uh, rule of 90 is about those who are living with HIV or on antiretroviral therapy uh, have a suppressed viral load. that we have nearly 21 million people 
on treatment now. So still, a lot of um, progress needs to be made. We need to um, uh, shift the trajectory, shift the slope of those curves to be able to reach these very ambitious targets. What I consider some other good news, especially since um, women are often left behind when it talks about uh, when we talk about um, access to services and to care, but um, in every region of the world, women are getting similar numbers or even um, more uh, or even better covered um, with antiretroviral therapy um, being made available. So again, how are we going to get to um, reach these ambitious goals that we're setting? So as I said, there's lots of strategies. There's these four sets of um, core guidelines to support the fast-track actions um, in these countries. And it's really all about ripping up what we already have. Yes, new interventions may, may be on the horizon, but a lot of it is about, about scaling up what we know already works, or already are proven interventions. So you may know that the test and treat or treat all um, policy um, is being adopted now everywhere. I was in Swaziland in um, October last year, so just a little over a year ago, when they were getting ready to launch um, their test and treat strategy there. So again, a high burden country, um, small country, but really uh, it is reaching everywhere. So all the green shaded countries here um, are indications where that the uh, Ministry of Health or government has accepted a treat-all policy. And what that translates into is uh, a third of all low and middle income countries, but 71% of the fast track countries have adopted this, this strategy. Um, and by the end of 2016, it was predicted that 80% um, of the fast track countries will have adopted this. But we all know adoption is just the first step, right? It's, it's that uh, policy practice guide. So we want, when we look at where um, this policy is being implemented, again, it's, it's rolling out a little bit more slowly. But again, the green shading is where it's been accomplished. Um, light green is where it's starting to roll out, et cetera. Um, and again, this is, this is just um, one important critical step that we're taking in being able to um, have a great impact um, on controlling the uh, population of HIV-infected individuals and, and um, new infections. Um, again, Swaziland built out a little over a year ago um, and um, adopted now nationwide. So, some numbers here 63% of the fast track countries have implemented a treat -all policy, uh, their treat all policy. So, important success. So, again, so if we started with those 90, 90, 90 um, targets, when we're talking about fast tracking, we're going to get up to 95, 95, 95. That's what's going to come next. So again, um, very ambitious goals of what needs to be done. And the reason is because if we don't uh, move, if we stand still and keep doing what we've been doing, we'll fall behind. So in this um, graphic, you can see that the um, red dots show what happens if we kind of continue what we've been doing, continue the, um, the constant coverage. And after a few years, the HIV epidemic um, sort of uh, resurfaces uh, with a vengeance, and we, we lose control. The blue dots um, <coughs> represent these are ambitious targets, but where we need to go in order to see um, an impact um, on controlling the epidemic. So some of the um, key principles of the fast track mode, again, it's about uh, 
focus high impact prevention interventions and services, targeting them where they are most needed. I think a lot of it's going to be about uh, making testing available not just in communities but in people's homes, right? Self-test. Um, and then, of course, the testing and treating implementation. Also with a focus, though, on quality, because we know, as I said in that first slide, that shows sort of the cascade of, of, of um, you know, uh, testing, starting on treatment, and, and achieving viral suppression. We know we need quality of, of uh, good quality of our services in order to achieve those. And it's also about reducing some disparities that we've seen. Um, well, and I thought this was interesting, too, that, again, Southern Africa, again, maybe it makes sense, that's where the burden is greatest, but they're actually leading the pack in terms of having 54% coverage um, for their HIV-infected patients, followed by Southeast Asia at 39% um, on Central and Western Africa, um, and so forth. So again, trying to bring up those other countries where services haven't been available um, on par and continue to, um, to even ramp up those that uh, have been doing better. And the good news is that there's evidence that we can achieve um, swift rollout and scale-up. So I just shared two studies here, the first one by Julia Ambia at um, the London School, who uh, led a team to conduct this national policy review in six sub-Saharan African countries and showed that that rapid adoption of WHO policies between the sort of two to three year span was, was possible. Countries were able to move swiftly and adopt their policies but it was the quality of care issues that um, were lagging behind. So there were med stock outs, they didn't have enough healthcare workers to get community healthcare workers in some of these settings that persisted. So again, it's about ramping up these interventions while at the same time focusing on, on quality of care. Um, and then uh, a recent article by uh, Nathan Ford and colleagues at WHO kind of summarized that these are some of the key principles that standardized, simplified ART delivery, task shifting, decentralized and integrated care seem to be some of the key principles of this new public health approach that has allowed us to uh, deliver and scale up HIV care. Um, and of course, this is sort of the approach we should be taking to as well ensure quality as we move forward. All right, so I'm in there. That's your big picture overview. And I'll get back to Elizabeth now, I guess, through the TV HIV. It's my turn. <laughs> Um, so, um, clearly, this is a very selective review of the global impact of HIV-associated um, tuberculosis. Um, I've chosen some aspects that I think might be of interest to you, that are updates that may be relevant in, in the work that you do with HIV. So, um, this is intended to justify uh, the insertion of dedicated tuberculosis talk within this. Um, just globally. 10.4 million new TB cases in the last reporting year, which was 2016. 10% of those are estimated among persons with HIV. The majority of that burden is in Africa, yeah? So there's one of those typical global maps where the darker the worst. So the darker uh, countries shown in that um, uh, annual report map, some are more than 50% of tuberculosis, uh, tuberculosis cases with HIV. Um, in case you've wondered what uh, is going on with the disparity of outcomes regarding uh, HIV-associated tuberculosis, uh, for HIV-negative folks, 83% uh, success rate through treatment in programmatic condition, and it's less so for HIV-associated, but pretty close, yeah. Um, this is a statistic that uh, helps me to, to frame the 
massive uh, burden of tuberculosis globally. It is the ninth leading cause of death and the first leading cause of infectious death. Yeah, so that's like traffic accidents, and heart attacks, and cancer. Ninth leading cause of death in the world among all, all persons. But the leading cause of death among persons living with HIV. That translates in, in a way that may be more accessible as they think about it in terms of one in five death among persons with HIV uh, is tuberculosis. Uh, and 374,000 died in the last reporting year of HIV-associated TB. So um, our requested focus today is, is on control strategies, so you have a sense of what's going on beyond our town, our border, our region. Um, and um, this, by way of background, is how in the TB world we refer to uh, jurisdictions and their burdens of disease. So um, earlier, uh, somehow uh, technologically challenged because they look great on the screen here, but these are three circles where um, the epidemiology suggests special attention to this group of countries that are MDR burdened. And this side is a, is a um, circle of TB HIV burden and then overall TB burden there. And they intersect, right? So there's the, the triple threat that some countries suffer. And those are the list in the middle. So I'll refer to high burden countries, particularly those that are TB HIV burden. Um, we have recommendations. Um, the first set are programmatic. And I'll, I'll essentially skip those. So, um, I'll refer to what are still called the three I's of decreasing the burden of tuberculosis among those with HIV. Uh, and then we'll talk about, conversely, how to revert, decrease the burden of HIV among TB patients. Uh, yeah, this is a summary, so I've chosen the six that I think are the most interesting and perhaps relevant. And number one is this continued imperative, the continued momentum toward HIV testing among TB cases. Yes, TB is the most common presenting illness among uh, those with HIV in endemic settings. Um, and the Global Tuberculosis Report, the uh, last available, so vibrantly colored there on the right, shows that 57% of notified TB patients had a documented HIV test. And this time we're speculating or just reflecting on the fact that within tuberculosis epidemiology, we talk about who's notified and then what we think the global reality is. Yeah, so notify means somebody has to fill out a form and submit, and then at the WHO they, they, they put it all together. And then with um, credible methods, they then estimate what the true burden is, because there's such a huge gap between reporting and uh, the reality of disease morbidity and mortality. So the range of those countries that actually notified to the World Health Organization was, was a pretty broad one, 14% only in Indonesia. Um, getting HIV tests for their TB patients and, and a high of 82% in the whole WHO African region. But the insert here is a graphic from the TB uh, report moving beyond notified into what's estimated. So this red line shows the estimate, and you can see there's, or I don't know where you are, you can see the broad band, but there, there's uncertainty around it. I think what um, is helpful to see is that the number is coming down of TB associated uh, in, in HIV persons. And in the black line here is the number of cases known to be HIV positive in the TB cases. Yeah. So coming down, big gap between what's notified and what's the uh, estimated reality globally. I always like to make a um, reference to what is within the global strategies of 
control that is infection control. For those of you who have worked in international settings, you know that there's a, a, a huge disparity between how we approach infection control for tuberculosis in this country and, and elsewhere. And some of the numbers to put on that are the risk of tuberculosis in healthcare workers is increased up to 135-fold, depending on where you work, in, in a, depending on your, your TB epidemiology and what job you have in the hospital. For the first time, the World Health Organization is asking countries to report their TB cases as to whether or not they're healthcare workers. So we're going to start tracking that. Long overdue, totally appropriate. Uh, and and uh, in, in this first reporting cycle, we have uh, 8,100 healthcare workers among those reported with TB. Uh, that happened in 60 countries, and look at that, China accounted for nearly 40%. So it seems like a bad place to work. Anybody's thinking about a job change, bring your n 95 with you, because they're doing a lot of transmission of TB in their healthcare settings. Uh, the seven, in seven countries, the TB rate among healthcare workers overall was twice the national TB rate. So. Um, it's not just enough to have active TB sensitive. We know of the disasters that have occurred um, for nosocomial M and XDR TB outbreaks. KwaZulu uh, Natal was, was the major um, wake up call to us all, uh, where healthcare workers certainly died along with their patients, um, given this almost untreatable form of TB at that time. So, of course, we have to establish safe facilities, especially those that serve HIV infected populations where um, outbreaks can be explosive in the nosocomial setting. I have um, used this graphic multiple times, and that, that's why I choose it this time. But of course, it's a great illustration of how we just, we, there's so much to pay attention to. How are we going to get safe healthcare facilities on top of everything else? And, and we, we don't. We, this has been, this graphic I've been using for more than seven years now. And I think it's absolutely the same. There may be some attention to this, um, and Lisa and I are doing some projects. Uh, in, in this regard that I hope we'll be able to bring <clears throat> some more information and I can update my animal to something that's a little braver and bolder, right? So number three we'll spend more time on, and that's intensified TB case. So one of the important uh, uh, eyes of uh, approaching um, HIV-associated tuberculosis. So regularly screen people with or at high risk of HIV for tuberculosis. Probably diagnose and treat, okay. We also have to screen household contacts for active tuberculosis. Um, and of course, you'd agree that this would be a very rich place to identify active cases. When you have a patient in your clinic, go to their home and find more cases. But um, it's very spotily done globally, um, in part because it feels daunting. You know, we think about, do you need a chest x-ray? Do you need to get a skin test done? Well, you actually don't need it. The, the guidelines suggest that simple screening questionnaires are adequately sensitive um, to at least get the ball rolling for a lot of the intensified case finding um, activities. And of course, we should entail, include, and um, recruit other community partners to do some of these activities. Um, to think you'd hear a talk from me without a picture of gene expert, right? Um, I wanted to start by saying that TB screening among uh, persons living with HIV is, um, is reported within the uh, WHO TB report. And they estimate that 7% of 1.3 million people who were newly enrolled in HIV care after 2016 were diagnosed with TB during the same year. That's, that's a very rich place to look for TB patients, yeah. So it follows logically that you would place WHO-recommended diagnostics strategically within HIV care centers. And there are two diagnostics worth uh, updating you on. 
One is the gene expert, so there's there's a picture of it. Then um, there's an update about how many cartridges are going out there in the countries that are eligible for concessional pricing, nearly seven million. Um, and most countries have now an algorithm that includes gene expert as the first diagnostic for all populations who are presumptive or in the old parlance suspect TB cases. Um, there are some pretty interesting things going on with regard to expert. Um, there's the portable version. You don't have to plug it in anymore. Yeah, it's battery powered. It automatically links up to reporting systems, so that's pretty cool. There's the ultra cartridge. We this year now have a very good demonstration project that gives us a number to its increased sensitivity. It looks like about 17% more sensitive for TB case identification than the previous version of Expert. Um, just want to preempt what you might hear in the background, which is that the specificity is a bit compromised on this new version. It often happens that our receiver operator characteristic curves that the more sensitive you get, the less specific you get. In the latest analysis of these false positives, it turns out that almost all of them are patients who have had TB in the previous year. And it's likely that um, the expert is detecting old DNA. So it may be that that's not a population we should be using it for, for contact, for um, case finding, if the patient has a, a history of TB in the last year. And they've improved rifampin resistance specificity a bit, which was a, 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 a modest problem in the previous one. There's also the XDR cartridge. Um, that goes for, uh, gives us sensitivity testing for isoniazid, fluoroprolones, and the second line injectable drugs. But um, I wanted to link back to um, how the expert is a multi-disease platform and a powerful tool for such, because recently approved is the gene expert cartridge for viral load determination. Yeah. So the same machine that's being deployed everywhere for, for TB diagnosis is also capable of meeting the recommendation WHO has for uh, doing a viral load test six months after therapy and then annually. This has been very technically difficult to implement in resource-limited settings, but here is a very simple method for automatic RNA extraction, purification, reverse transcriptase, and quantification. So the TB cartridge doesn't tell you how much TB is there. It's dichotomous, but this gives you how much uh, HIV viral load. Yeah. So the diagnostic that you may not hear, have heard as much about, but is quite relevant for HIV savvy audiences, is the lateral flow uh, lipo aromatomatum uh, assay. It's produced by a layer. It's, it's pretty cool. It's like a little strip, yeah. Um, uh, maybe maybe about that big, and then um, you get uh, how positive. It's a urine test. Oh, did I tell you that? That's really great, right? So it's a urine test, and and if you see the um, bands. Uh, it's like how positive. So one is barely positive, two is more certainly positive, and there's some confusion in the early stages of the deployment of this diagnostic based on um, whether you use one or two as a cutoff positive, but I had the distinct professional pleasure of joining with the McGill University TB researchers to do a systematic review and um, meta-analysis of the many studies to try to understand why is the sensitivity all over the place, right? So look at those numbers, 13 to 93, if you count only micro-confirmed cases, 80 to 80% sensitive if you use confirmed end clinical cases. Um, and then the answer is, of course, within the HIV status and how you know suppressed the person is. So clearly, this diagnostic is more sensitive than anyone who has HIV, and then it's more sensitive with more advanced disease, which does make some sense because the leaky conveys in lots of microorganisms and et cetera. 
uh, this led to a policy guidance by World Health Organization to use this diagnostic in HIV care settings, especially to start in inpatient settings where the HIV suspected or confirmed patient has danger signs of TB, like, like breathing fast. So here, the, the CD4 should be below 100 in use or suspected as such. So there's a lot coming out with regards to implementation of this. Um, and I'd like to always bring back any talk about diagnostics with making sure that it's not only sensitive and specific and what's the positive predictive value of surgery, but what are the patient development outcomes? What does it matter to patients if this thing is sensitive or not? So I like very much this study uh, from John Peter uh, looking at the impact on mortality of deployment of uh, the LAM, lateral flow diagnostic on urine, um, in, in places that are highly HIV enriched. So sensitivity in their hands was 45%, specificity was 89% lower than some of the other published studies. Um, but, but here's the key, I think, is that the diagnostic is associated with more people starting TB treatment, more people starting treatment within um, four days of admission, and then here's the holy grail, reduced mortality within eight weeks of their admission. Um, it was a modest benefit, but, but truly uh, demonstrated for the first time and highly motivating toward indeed employment in some of the settings that needed most. You know about uh, the recommendation for ART and cotrimoxazole preventive therapy to HIV-positive TB patients, irrespective of CD4 count, to be started within eight weeks of the start of TB therapy. There was a lot of hand-wringing in the beginning with the understanding that people can have a um, immune reconstitution syndrome, which might even be fatal if there was CNS disease, but now it's simplified, isn't it? This is much more implementable. So um, this this is well on its way. You know, Lisa and I wring our hands a lot about why is CPT, cogemoxazole preventive therapy, taken up so much better than IPT or isoniazid preventive therapy. We'll talk more about that globally in 2016. Only about 39% of HIV-positive TB patients were on IRT. And the reason that sometimes you hear a much higher number is that this is this disparity between notified and estimated. Um, so on to IBT, as we transition to report a bit on our research, um, I think that this is a savvy crowd knowing that up to 30 times more likely are HIV-infected persons to progress from late to active TB compared with HIV-uninfected. Um, IBT is effective when deployed to reduce the TB risk of uh, those with HIV by about a third or two thirds. Um, it's recommended for the population shown in areas of prevalence with latent TB infection more than 30% or with documented LTBI or exposure to a case. And it's one to watch in terms of the NTB strategy, uh, expecting that uh, we're going to need this in order to achieve some of the very aggressive strategies toward TB. There are simple algorithms out there. This does not have to be complicated in order to start a patient. Um, we, we keep coming back to that. For years, we've been hearing the challenges of, of starting. Um, in fact, what's needed is, is a credible symptom screen. Um, and out there is the recommendation for isoniazid, six months. That's what most countries are doing. Or 36 months of IPT, which is a study that I was involved in in Botswana where we clearly saw benefit of the 36-month regimen, uh, and it hurts my feelings considerably that it's this conditional recommendation, moderate quality evidence in a randomized controlled trial of 2,000 patients, but there it is. Um, here's two bullets that I just want to, I guess, freshen up your understanding of, of the heavy lift of IPT, right? That 
there is and needs to be expanded access to the shorter regimens for preventive treatment to facilitate large-scale implantation. We can't do six months, we can't do nine. We need the four-month regimens, we need the rifampentine, potentially, and we also need diagnostic tests that tell us what we need to know, which is who's going on at active TB. We don't need to know if somebody has ever seen it and been done with you know, the organism's long gone. Um, you think the, the skin tests and the iris both probably have a positive predictive value for active TB in the single percent. So these are not really what we want. We want something, a test that tells us who is going to progress. And those are coming, but not actually imminent. So yay, a red line that shows we're doing better with regards to the provision of TB preventive treatment to people living with HIV. So it's a steep red line, that's the global number. South Africa accounts for about 41% of that IPT. Um, and there's a lot of variability internationally uh, with regards to the uptake of it. And on my last slide, I'll show you that um, some of the countries that are high burden in one sphere or another do use a bit of IPT. Indonesia, not so much. Uh, Zimbabwe is doing better, yeah? That's the blue bar, or your light, your pale bar, whatever. Red is active tuberculosis, so, so they, they can't get IPT. It is the green or chartreuse or whatever color you see bar that's most concerning, which is the gap. These are people who are not getting IPT when they should, or TB preventive services when they should. Um, we have become engaged um, in this particular country, Swaziland, um, to, to try to help them reduce their green. So that's the transition now back to Lisa to tell you what we've been up to. Thank you, Elizabeth. So I wanted to just share some of the results from um, some of the work that Elizabeth and I have been doing um, in Swaziland. And uh, of course, I realized as we were merging slide sets and stuff, what I'm really remiss here is mentioning, in addition to Elizabeth, we've been working with a medical sociologist, Scooter Grandy from TBI, um, and a very um, strong um, Swaziland uh, from the University Research Council, so I give um, knowledge to my partners there, to the Zonian, and Zisi, who have been critical in conducting this work. So, a reminder about where Swaziland is, um, fully embedded within South Africa, bordering with Mozambique. The good news is Swaziland recognized the importance of IPT early on and launched their IPT program in 2009. The bad news is uptake was quite poor, with only 10% of those um, who were eligible receiving it, and of those who did start APT, somewhere around about a third of them were actually completing it. And that came out of a, um, a chart review that we did at four different facilities. <clears throat> so in a couple of years ago, 2015, 2016, we um, were able to undertake a prospective cohort study to try to identify an improved um, means for delivering IPT, um, an effective and sustainable model. And we did sort of three things. We um, used a patient-selected uh, delivery model, so they could either get choose to get care um, facility-based or home-based, could be community-based, but everybody who chose community-based got it at home. We aligned their IPT with their antiretroviral refill. Seems like a low-hanging fruit piece, but it took um, a fair amount of negotiation to make that happen. And we did some healthcare worker training and motivational interview. Those are sort of our, our three key interventions. And what we saw from the 908 patients that we enrolled in that study um, were very high adherence rates to IPT, 
high treatment completion rates. 89% completed treatment when typically we're looking at 40 to 50, 55% treatment completion rates. And this was the same whether the patients chose the facility-based or the um, home-based, community-based care. Um, and we were very pleased that 
98% is good or very good. And we asked another one, we said, well, what do you think your community thinks about here, here um, in case, you know, to, to try to eliminate any, any um, bias that they might have if they were being interviewed at the facility, we thought they might be a little bit more candid. Um, but they, they were also still quite favorably inclined towards the care that they were receiving at their facility. Um, and similarly, they felt that they had good availability and access to services. We asked, what were the clinician characteristics that were most important when you were receiving your IPT? And it seems that they uh, really valued <clears throat> friendly staff, people who uh, greeted them warmly when they when they were um, uh, entered the clinic and were being seen. <clears throat> and we asked about uh, receiving care from the clinic. What really matters most to you? And interestingly, it was more about availability of services than you thought the waiting times would be uh, a critical factor. But it turns out that they were willing to wait for to receive their services as long as those services were there. Um, some of the surprising results from these data that came out in our qualitative um, uh, survey were that disclosure was quite high. We didn't expect this. So almost everybody in this, in, that we surveyed told somebody they were in the study and receiving IPT. Now that's all we asked. We don't know how much more they got, how much more detail they provided. And most of them, um, the vast majority, told the family member. We were also pleasantly surprised that their TV education or knowledge seemed to be quite high. We asked, you know, why were you motivated to be in the study? Well, most of them said, I don't want to get TB. Um, they understood the importance of, of taking IPT if they're HIV infected or a TB contact. So we got really right to the heart and said, okay, what do you think was important um, to, that enabled you to um, complete your, your therapy? And here we see it, right? Almost everybody said, Linking my IPT with my antiretroviral seemed to be critical. But people also, the majority also valued being given a choice. We thought that there might be some self-efficacy, some patient empowerment that came along with being offered a choice. Even though most of them choose to get care where they have received it all along, um, we think that just being offered a choice um, had an impact. And we were wonder wondering too, because you know, when you're enrolled in a study, sometimes you get a little VIP treatment. We were worried if that was going to be factored, but that was sort of split um, half and half, so we don't think that that played a major role. So our conclusions from all this is that our, it's in that all three interventions were playing a role um, and were important in um, facilitating IPT uh, treatment completion. And that healthcare worker communication, that, that third bullet there, the friendliness, patient education, we, we don't know for certain, but we are um, speculating that it was related to the motivational interviewing that was done. Um, we think that that may have played a role. Um, patients were favorably um, uh, inclined towards their care. Now that may have also been a self-selection that the patients who were favorably inclined towards their HIV care were those who were more likely to um, complete treatment. Um, so we can't quite uh, uh, you know, separate that out. But we thought that that um, was useful to understand. And the disclosure piece, maybe having a social support system in place plays a key role in allowing you to adhere and, and um, complete treatment. Uh, so this is now, we were recently in Swaziland in November, presented this at a national research meeting. Great enthusiasm for rolling this out 
nationally and uh, ideally regionally, and uh, an IPT toolkit development is, is actively under, underway. We're uh, brought Dominic uh, DeGeisel in to work on that with us as well. Um, and so we do hope that there is great hope that this will be um, a uh, model that will be implemented in other settings as well. So, in conclusion to our whole talk, I can summarize it by saying this is clearly an important but also, I think, exciting moment in uh, what's happening with uh, reducing the global HIV burden of disease. Great progress has been made, and now it's going to be about ramping up um, the efforts and interventions uh, that we have at hand. Similarly, um, there's globally a significant burden of TB and HIV, and a lot of work to be done um, on that front as well. There are strategies that exist for closing some of these gaps and managing patients, and um, uh, again, some clear guidance on where we, where we uh, should be focusing and some new exciting um, work with the new diagnostics that's on the, on the very near horizon. And again, that our, from our research piece, that our patient-selected integrated care seems to yield um, excellent treatment completion rates in the setting of Swaziland, everything with that. Um, and hope that that will be true elsewhere where it's adopted. I'll let you Thank you. Are there any questions? questions? Anybody want to offer their experience in any parallel or yeah. directions? And then you're, you're the HIV folks. Can you tell how heavy of a lift it was? You know, like this first study gives the opportunity to sort of get us how much more expensive or more glorious it was to have this onto the context of each other. So we actually have, as part of um, this work, sort of a, a costing calculator to be a part of it. So we were able to um, say, you know, we needed to add in if patients chose um, home-based care, vehicles, fuel, drivers, staff to leave the clinic and go out and make these home visits. But again, such a small number actually chose that. We actually think that that burden and cost is actually quite low. The, um, the extra work that they needed to do to enroll patients um, on IPT seemed to be manageable, especially once sort of nurses were getting up to speed and comfortable with the forms. Um, so we don't think that it, it will be um, onerous. It was work for the pharmacy to be able to say, okay, we're going to package these together and stuff, but um, again, I don't think once, once once things were sort of rolled out and started, I don't think there was um, significant extra work that was done. Most of the work was on our part of doing all the sort of monitoring and um, tracking the patients. But yeah, that's why a toolkit can be helpful too, to just to mm -hmm. transfer this kind of en masse, every bit and piece, every PowerPoint, every cost of monitoring evaluation. So hoping to facilitate some of that. Yeah, um, nice summer. Thank you very much. And impressive results in Swazi. I had a question about the survey, and I may have missed this. Were those answers from all of the participants? You only had a few who weren't adherent. So right. it, was, right. it might have been hard to do this, but did you look at the difference between the responses of those versus the ones who were? Um, yeah. Were, so we took uh, you know 150 out of the 100 and, uh, out of the 908, um, and only looked at those who completed, figuring that they would be the ones who would be able to tell us what mattered most to them in completing treatment. 
so yeah, so we had a small uh, small number that didn't complete, and there were I think some concerns too about whether they would be traceable. You know, many of them were, were sort of so hard to do a default study because right yeah. now, yeah, and, and we had so few studies. So, yeah. um, so this is an unusual kind of study for me in the way that we had done the initial, and then USAID the one is to turn around and ask these questions of that cohort in this way. So we were quite accommodating with the funded study. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll see if that makes a difference. Okay, well. And I, 
I didn't present this because it was from the, the first study, but um, we did not have any breakthrough TB cases, too. We had 22 patients screened positive at some point, at least once for about 30 some odd screening, positive screening episodes, and everybody had TB excluded. One patient had was treated for clinical confirmed TB, but that didn't meet our criteria of um, the TB case. So about a 908. So we're going to contribute to that, hopefully, reduction in fear that this IPD is going to lead to increased resistant TB traces and these HIV-infected infections. So, huh? yeah. Well, thank you all. Yeah. <laughs>